You've heard two scriptures already this morning. I'm going to read them to you once more. I invite you to listen carefully and listen well to the word of God from Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then also from Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, through all, and in all. Indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, since it was Josephine's baptism this morning, you've already seen Zach standing and, uh, up front, and he'll be singing in a minute. I'm a, uh, I guess pick on Zach just a little bit with a story, which I think is from his life, which is almost a parable, I, I believe. Um, and you can see the obvious baptism connection. So when Zach was two or three years old, uh, he was at the pool with his family, and in his uh, young exuberance and spying a moment of, of freedom, he took off for the other side of the pool, around the edge from where his mom was. And, uh, you know, in his two-year-old self, Perhaps he wasn't quite ready to make all those decisions because he fell right into the pool. Couldn't swim. He says it's one of his earliest childhood memories. He was finding himself at the bottom of the pool. He'd had either instinct or enough awareness to not try to breathe underwater. But there he was. And he looked up and realized that he needed to get up there to the surface, but he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to go about it. And as his, he was there at the bottom of the pool, looking up, he saw a hand break the surface and then reach down to him and take hold of him. It was a familiar hand. It was, it was his mom's hand, who's here this morning. And she drew him up out of the water and where he could breathe the breath of life. It's, a, it's sort of a parable, isn't it? Right? Uh, bringing together all kinds of different strings of the scriptures um, it's the story of humanity, who in our youthfulness in the garden uh, tried to do a little more than we were capable of doing. And Adam and Eve tried to go their own way around the far corner and weren't quite prepared for it. It's the story in some sense of the prodigal who makes his way to a far country and then finds himself at the bottom of the pit, unable really to do anything for himself, but at least has the ability to look towards the place from whence his help might come. Knowing he couldn't force it, but knowing, hopefully by grace, the prodigal said, I will be received again into my father's house. And then, too, the arm of Zach's mom, in this instance, reminds us of the church. Because really, it was a life-saving move there, wasn't it? <clears throat> and the church, as the bride of Christ, is in many respects the mother of all who are Christians. And so have been given this gift by God of baptism 
in connection with God's saving grace by which that grace is sealed upon us and we are marked as Christ's own. It is the means by which we move from death into life again. Just a story, just a parable, perhaps, of what happens in baptism. Three things I wanted to highlight. You know, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three in one. Three persons, one essence. And so the actions of Christ are also the actions of the Father in the power of the Spirit. God's will is one. God's uh, movements are one. And yet there are moments in which we can sort of identify a little bit with each of the persons of the Trinity in particular actions. Though they remain the will and the action of the one God. In baptism, we can say that the Father adopts us. The Father adopts us as His children. In baptism, we are made one with the body of Jesus Christ. We are granted union with Him. In baptism, the Scriptures tell us, we are fashioned like living stones into that living building which is the church, meant now and graced now to house the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Adopted by the Father, joined to the body of Jesus Christ, and now the location for the indwelling Spirit. That's what happens in baptism. But I want us to push just a little further into this. And to do so, I'm going to uh, give you an example. And then uh, see how that particular way of reading the Scripture opens up some of the rest of Scripture for us. And so, you've heard me mention this before. It's an ancient way of reading the Bible. Those in the very earliest moments of the church, descended from the apostles, read the Bible in this way. We would do well to learn from them. It's the way of typology. And so they say the Old Testament is full of types, or copies, you might say, of the reality which we meet in Jesus Christ. And so the history of the Old Testament is, is real history, but it is also imbued with particular hints and meanings that help us to understand who Jesus is when he comes. So you might look at the offices of the Old Testament. The offices there, prophet, priest, and king. Those offices were important in the, people, in the life of the people of Israel during those days, and yet they come to their fullest expression when we meet Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the prophet of God, who proclaims, thus says the Lord. And he does that in a particularly unique way because he is the word. The very word that he proclaims is himself. So he proclaims not just with words, but also with actions in his very being. Prophet, priest. Hebrews tells us, of course, that Jesus is our great high priest. The one who intercedes for us. The one who leads us actually in worship. This morning, it is Christ who leads our worship. And in fact, our worship isn't what we do. Our worship is what Christ does, and we say amen to that. And he stands in for us as the one true worshiper. He is our high priest. He is also our king. He descended to the very lowest point, the bottom of the pool, you might say. To the very depths of death. And because of this, God raised him up and seated him at the right hand of the Father and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Those offices of the Old Testament 
help us understand who he is. But the early readers of Scripture pushed this even further and said it's not just the offices of the church, it's the people too. People who were uniquely created by God and and image God in their being, and yet also, just like each of you, have a way in which they express the image of God in in which they are made to the world. And so Jesus, by Scripture, is called the last Adam. The last Adam. But there's some changes, some differences. Just as the first Adam sinned and so brought death into the world, the, the last Adam lived righteously and so brings life. Jesus, we might call the seed of Abraham. We've been talking about Abraham for a couple of weeks, right? He was promised a son and then a lineage that would bless the whole world. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. We understand who he is more, more fully uh, because of that initial promise made to Father Abraham. Uh, Jesus is the resurrected Isaac, right? Isaac, the beloved, his, Abraham, Abraham's beloved son, the one who was promised to him, was also the one who loaded the wood upon his back and climbed the hill to make an altar and then be the sacrifice. And yet, another was provided as substitute. A ram with his head caught in the thorns. And so Jesus is the resurrected Isaac, the one who puts the wood of the cross upon his back and climbs the hill and then is nailed to the altar with the crown of thorns around his head. And yet, humanity's hand in this instance is not stayed, but they nail him. And he dies, they pierce him with a spear, and from his side comes forth blood and water. And God brings him to life, the beloved. He is the resurrected Isaac. We could call him the temple, the living temple of God. When Moses went up on the mountain and God gave him to see the the heavenly temple, he made a copy of that temple for the earth. And so Jesus then comes and reveals that He is the true temple and that He is the dwelling place of God on earth. And He overturns the temple, doesn't He? Such that the sacrifices which have been ongoing for centuries come to an end with His sacrifice. Jesus is the temple, the dwelling place of God among us. It's the place where we worship. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is a prophet like Moses who, who leads his people on an exodus journey, not from slavery to Pharaoh, but out of slavery and bondage to sin and death. Jesus is the key to understanding the puzzle of the Old Testament and the signs that we find there. That's typology. There's many connections as you might possibly find. The readers of the scriptures push this a bit further, though. I just wanted to give you an example of how we see Jesus in this light to say they also saw the life of the church, the New Testament church, in the Old Testament as well. And particularly, they saw the sacraments embedded in little ways in the past. And uh, I gave you a, a hint of one of those. Out of Christ's side came blood and water. Blood, which we is the new covenant sealed in his blood and water, which is how we are joined to the side of the last Adam as Eve, his bride. But they also saw baptism in the Old Testament. And they looked at all these instances where water appears. And they didn't just notice the water. They they noticed what is the water doing? 
What is God doing in the midst of that space? And they came to understand more clearly what happens in a baptism. So where's the first place we see the water? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Spirit of God and the water. We see water and the Spirit connected. And then on uh, the day when God decided He created all these spaces, the heavens, uh, the seas, and the dry land, and now He begins to fill these spaces with life. The very first place where life appeared was in the midst of the waters. He said, let the waters teem with living creatures. The word is actually nefesh, which means souls. The water is the first place where life appears in God's creation. Now, doesn't it make sense that our life begins in the water too? There's water in the garden, which God plants. There are four rivers which flow out of the garden, really to the four corners of the earth is the implication. So out of this garden which God plants in Eden, life-giving water flows to the rest of the world. And this is God's intention for Adam and Eve, that as they care for this place, they'll be given a larger space and larger space. And so it becomes uh, uh, global in that sense, where God's rule and humanity's dominion within it extends to the whole earth. Four rivers flowing out, bringing life. And so... The church itself is another garden. It is another Eden. It is a place where we walk with God in the cool of the day. And the font is that originating source where the water of Christ and the blessing of new life in Him flows to the four corners of the earth. You heard the Great Commission. As we receive the waters of baptism and become Christ's disciples, made new in Him, we are sent to all nations so that it becomes a global reality, God's rule in this place. Here's the water which flows out to the ends of the earth. You could look not just at creation and at Eden, but look not much further in Genesis and we find the flood. <clears throat> the flood which is sort of an undoing of creation. God allowing the space that He has made to then be subsumed again beneath the chaotic waters because the thought of mankind have grown wicked in every way. So there's a clear washing away of evil, uh, of sin, of destructive power through that water. But there's also Noah. We can see that in our baptism, right? A washing clean, a washing away of sin. But there's something that remains through that, isn't there? Noah and his family, there were eight of them which made it through the flood on the ark, which made it through the baptism of the whole world. Eight, signifying the eighth day of creation. You said there's seven days. There's eight days of creation. Jesus was nailed to the cross on the sixth day, the day when humankind was made, and then he rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, and he rose again, not on the first day of the week. It was the first day, but it was the first day of the new creation. It was the eighth day of creation. There were eight that made it across the baptism of the flood and the ark. The church made like an ark with the rafters appearing as such. Eight sides on the baptismal font. If you noticed that before. Eight. 
It's an important number, an important day. Noah passes through the baptism. And what you see is Noah being a second Adam. Another, or a new Adam, you might say. On one side of the flood, in the garden, God planted a garden in Eden. And God created humanity and he gave him dominion over the animals and so on and so forth. But then on the other side of the flood, guess who? Guess what the first thing that Noah does happens to be? Noah plants a garden on the other side of that baptismal water. Noah, his station as a human being, his capacity to receive what God has for him and to live it out has grown. You might call it a glorification of humanity, a maturation of humanity now. He's doing the sorts of things. God is giving him to do the sorts of things God has done through the waters of baptism. Noah plants a garden. He receives uh, uh, the cup of the Sabbath. There's conversation whether Noah perhaps received too much of that or not. There's a confusing passage there, right? But the wine of the Sabbath. wonder what the early church said about coming to the other side of the garden and he plants a vineyard and in a garden and then there's wine. Do you think the table might have popped into anyone's mind? On the other side of baptism, what do we have waiting for us? Noah then judges his sons in the same way that God had judged between Cain and Abel. Now Noah is given the vocation of judging. There's there's a step up that happens. There's a, a greater capacity for humanity to image and carry out God's tasks in the world on the other side of that baptismal flood. Israel's exodus, of course, passing through the waters Sin and death lay behind just as Pharaoh's bondage did. And now we're opened up to a new life where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what God says to Josephine today. That's what God says to those of you who have passed through the waters. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's a promise. We see too that when they make it through the wilderness of this life, that Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River as it too parts and they pass through the waters into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that is good and abundant. You see them passing through the waters led by one whose name, Joshua, is Yeshua in Hebrew. And that is the name of Jesus in Hebrew. Yeshua is the one who leads us through the waters into paradise. You look at other examples that may not come as readily to mind. Elijah, atop Mount Carmel, doing battle with the prophets of Baal, the god of the storm. They said, let's set up two altars. We'll pray to our gods and whoever's victorious will light their altar with wood on it on fire. Baal was supposed to be the god of the storm who would send lightning to consume the wooden sacrifice. He didn't. And then what does Elijah do? He takes water and he places water on the wood. And more and more and more and more water. There's a trench. It's just drenched. It's baptism. He baptizes the sacrifice on the altar. And what happens next? Fire from heaven. It was a mini Pentecost, wasn't it? A baptism with the fire of the Spirit descending. 
and demonstrating who the true God is. That's baptism. You know, I had a bit of anointing oil after Josephine was baptized. I said, Josephine, you were a child of the covenant sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism. Marked as Christ's own forever. Oil used as a sign of anointing and a sign of the presence of the Spirit because it reflects light. It's like a little fire right there on her forehead in the sign of the cross. You were too were marked with that sign. You too can find a bit of your baptism in Elijah's contest atop Carmel. Naaman, the Syrian commander, leprous, is washed in the water and made clean. Jesus heals the man by the pool of Bethsaida who waited for the water to be stirred up and met Jesus there by the water who tells him to stand to take up his mat and walk that he's made well. Jesus heals the man born blind. Here's a sign of the creation all over again. He takes a bit of his own water and mixes it with the mud and places it upon the man's eyes just as God took the dust of the ground and formed it together, now joined with water, and the man sees. All these images of baptism come to us if we look to the Old Testament and look to the testimony of the church. All that and more happened this morning, just now. And really, given all that, you say, wouldn't I expect it to be more shocking when I see it. Bigger, somehow. And yet you might have said the same thing about the Lord Jesus when He came. Who had no remarkable appearance. Who didn't come to gather attention in the world the way the world typically gives attention, but came in humility, in a small way, a tender way, and so it happens with us. Something very small and tender and beautiful has happened this morning. And yet there's more to it than we can see. I was told once that you will spend, the vocation of the Christian is to spend the rest of your life coming to understand what you have received in your baptism. What has happened to you by God's grace? what He has done to you, and how He invites you further into that reality. That takes a whole life long. Adopted by the Father. Joined to the body of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Fitted as a living temple, together with all of us, as the location for the, the living, indwelling Spirit. That's happened to Josephine this morning. It's happened to you. Let's remember who we are and whose we are and what God has done for us in our baptism. And let all that we do be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.